we place a high value on success in this culture. If you don't believe me, just tune into the latest reality competition on TV and watch people striving to be the best, whether it's singing or dancing or some really obscure talent, but at least they're the best at it, right? Or think about it in the way that uh, success covers over a multitude of sins, right? We'll explain away a lot of bad behavior on someone's part as long as they're successful, right? That's why it's impossible for wealthy people to be crazy, right? Only poor people can be crazy. Rich people are eccentric, right? Or for me, it's that I I grew up in a family where success was the guiding star for our family. Both of my parents were the first people in their entire families and preceding generations to have gone to college. Uh, And so that was a big deal for them that they'd carved out a better and more successful life than anything anyone else in their family had had opportunity to have. And, And they expected that that would pay forward in our family, that me and my siblings, we would all go to college and we'd all have successful uh, college, you know, driven lives. Uh, I instilled it in myself just through the, the movies and the stories that were told and valued growing up that, that what matters is winning the big game or having victory in the big battle or, or earning the big promotion. Success was what everyone should be aiming for and success was the thing that if you didn't have meant that you were a failure. But as I've grown up, I, I've started to question whether that really is right or if, it's, if maybe there's a half-truth there. See, because I think I at least was instilled with a, an oversimplified version of success. That what I learned was that success equals winning. Winning is how you know you've succeeded. And winning means competition. So that means your measure of success is actually based on how poorly other people do compared to you. See, if you're going to win the big game, someone else has to lose the big game. If you're going to earn the promotion, someone else has to not get the promotion. If you're going to have the really good Instagram feed, someone else needs to have not quite as good of pictures as you have. And I've learned that that's ultimately an unfulfilling and a hollow way to live your life, to strive for that kind of success, one that's based on how well we compare to the people around us. And so then what else is there? If we're not going to base success on how we compare, what should we be aiming for? What should we be looking at? And as we explore that question this morning, we're going to look specifically at one of Jesus's closest friends, his apostle, his disciple, uh, Simon Peter. And we're going to see the kind of success that he strove for, what ultimately happened to him, and what impact that has for us today as we try to live successful, meaningful lives of impact. So we're going to be in one of the Gospels. Luke is one of um, the early Christians who wrote all about Jesus, and specifically he's writing about Jesus' last day. Jesus knows he's about to be killed tomorrow. And so this is his opportunity to sit down at the Last Supper with his disciples, and he's going to try and explain to them everything they need to know. This is like a last-minute cram session before he's gone so that they can live successful, meaningful lives. And he's been laying out a lot of stuff, and that's going to include what he says to them here. So when the hour came for Jesus to die, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them a lot of things, but uh, among what he said to them, he said, the hand of him who is going to betray me 
is with mine on the table. One of you, you know, these are his 12 closest friends. One of you is going to betray me. Now the son of man will go as it has been decreed. I will, I will go peacefully uh, to be betrayed unto death. But woe to that man who betrays Jesus. And so the 12 disciples began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. And a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Can't you picture this Thanksgiving awkwardness? They're sitting around the table. Jesus drops this bomb. He says, one of you is going to betray me. And and it immediately triggers defensiveness and reaction. People say, oh, it can't be me. It can't be me. It'd have to be you. It'd have to be you. And you can see how easily and quickly that defensiveness would turn into an argument about who's the greatest right? Because someone would be saying, oh, it can't be me who's going to be betray Jesus. I'm the first one up in the morning. I, I do all the chores. I'm diligent. Uh, you know, it can't be me. I, I'm so much more humble and faithful than that. Or, or someone would say, well, it can't be me. I, I'm the one who prays the most out of any of us. And so surely I'm not the one who's going to betray Jesus. Or someone would say, well, it can't be me. I've done more miracles than any of you. Surely I'm not the one who's going to betray Jesus. You see how, how even in defensiveness, we, we retreat to this comparison, this saying, oh, I'm better than other people, and so that must be why I'm okay. That must be why this betrayal thing isn't me. And so even at the beginning of this story, this moment in Simon Peter's life, when Jesus is trying to say something that's kind of more important than how successful they feel in their lives, and yet that's where they go with it. They have to compare themselves. They have to be better than the other people around them because that's how they make themselves feel better about their lives and about this accusation that Jesus has leveled. And I know that that's basically how I lived my life for a long time. This comparison, this constantly just evaluating where I stood with someone else. Uh, And that was what, again, ultimately became so hollow and wearying because even if I won this game, there was always going to be another game and I might lose that one and then I'd be worthless and, and not have value. Or maybe you'd get this promotion, but then you have, to, you have to prove that you deserved it. Or maybe you had a great time at Thanksgiving and it was all on your social media and you got lots of likes, but now you've got a fake Christmas for the next month. And it's going to be hard. And so I was introduced to a concept earlier this year, and it's really been just so electrifying for my life. Uh, James P. Kars is a religious scholar, and he says that there are two kinds of games that we play. Finite games and infinite games. And a finite game is one where there's a clear ending, where the rules are clear, and where you play in order to win. But an infinite game is a game with no clear ending, it's infinite, it keeps going, no clear rules, and you play in order to keep playing. So finite games are kind of obvious to think about. That's any sports game is a finite game. There's an ending, and at the end, one team wins, one team loses. Uh, It's pretty clear cut. But the infinite games are a little fuzzier. And if you were to think about this new framework, what would you say your life has been or should be? Is your life a finite game, or is your life an infinite game? I'll just tell you, for me, most of my life I have been playing by finite game rules. I think that my life has been about winning, about competing, about comparing myself to others and being greater than them in whatever measuring stick we've got for that particular moment. But maybe that's been the problem. 
Because if we're locked into finite game thinking, then we really are only as good as our latest victory. And if we have failure, then that negates anything we might have accomplished in our lives. And so if we're living our lives as a finite game, we have to constantly be on alert, fearful of protecting ourselves from the next possible failure. Because maybe I accomplished that thing, but there's something else that I've now got to succeed at. And so we'll do anything to avoid the possibility of failure. Some of the coping mechanisms I've seen, uh, one I call the reset button. See, I grew up on video games, and I got a video game one Christmas when I was 13, and uh, it's called Shining Force 2. Probably none of you have heard of it. It wasn't that big. Um, But I played that game for months after Christmas. And after I'd put hours and hours, months of playing time into this game, gotten pretty close to the end, uh, a friend revealed to me that I had missed an achievement that was five hours into the game. And there was no way to get it anymore. And so for me to keep playing meant that I was not going to be able to to beat the game with perfect completion. Uh, I wasn't going to be able to win, succeed at the game. I I could get to the end, but I wasn't going to be able uh, to win with a perfect completion rate. So you know what I did? I hit the reset button. I wiped out months of effort and work in playing this game. Started over all the way at the beginning so that I could fix this one thing and play the game right and and win it with 100% completion. That was ridiculous. I hope you see it. 13-year-old me didn't see it. He thought that made sense. But, but we don't just do that kind of thing in video games, right? We, we do that in life. I, mean, I, I do that in relationships, right? There's a relationship, and I'm hopeful that it's going to be a meaningful one, one of mutual support and encouragement. Uh, but then something goes wrong. That There's an argument, or one person lets the other one down, or, or I do something that now I'm ashamed of or embarrassed. And, and rather than push through that failure in the relationship, what do I do? I hit the reset button. I go make a new friend. Right? It's easier to just reset and start over and try and make a new friendship than to push through the failure in an existing relationship because then you have to face all of the things that led to that failure. You have to admit things you don't want to admit. Or maybe you do that with jobs, careers. You know, this didn't go well. That's all right. I'm just going to do uh, something different. I'm going to reset and start all over. But I don't know about you. I've gotten to a place in my own life where I'm realizing I'm running out of time to keep resetting things. There are only so many more friends I'm going to have the opportunity to make. I kind of have to figure out what I'm going to do with the ones I've got. Uh, There are only so many uh, careers I can shift paths on. Uh, Just to be real honest with you, I, I have always had in the back of my mind a dream to be a professional poker player. And I just had to face, just in the last couple months, I was watching a, a tournament and I just realized I can't do it anymore. There's no way at this point in my life to reset, start over, and be the successful professional poker player I'd like to be. I, I've missed that opportunity. I guess, I guess I'm stuck with being a pastor. <laughs> There comes the point where you can't just keep resetting. And and so if we avoid failure by resetting, we're ultimately uh, just pushing the, you know, kicking the can down the road. And there comes a point where we can't do that anymore. Or maybe that's not you. Maybe you're someone who likes to just uh, shift your sights, right? You aim at something. And even if you miss, you just say that the thing you missed, well, that must have been what I was aiming for. And so you just redraw the target around whatever it was you hit. You know, you applied to a lot of colleges and you didn't get into the ones you really liked. But you know what? The safety school, th- that's really what I wanted anyway. That, that, was, the better, that was the better choice. Uh, for me, I've shared this a couple times up here, but uh, co- my first time around in college didn't go real well. My third year of college, I actually flunked out of school and dropped out. 
And as I was wrestling with that failure and the shame that came with it, uh, the first thing I did was immediately sign up for a one-year-long missionary opportunity. And that looked really good from the outside. People looked at, oh, look at this young man. He, he, he takes his faith so seriously. He wants to go be a missionary. But really, it was just because I would do anything to not be that bum living in his parents' basement after dropping out of college. I didn't want to be a failure at this college thing. So, you know what? I'm just going to succeed at something else. And, uh, and I'll go be a missionary. And then I'll look successful and meaningful and like I have a fulfilling life. But really, all I was doing was shifting the target trying to hide this failure that I was so secretly ashamed about. I think that's where a lot of successful people live because they can always point to their accomplishments uh, and say, look at all the things I've done, but, but if it wasn't the thing they were aiming at, if it wasn't the thing they really wanted to be succeeding at, it's still ultimately just avoiding failure. Which I think leads us to what I think is the, the saddest of the ways we try to avoid failure, which is to pretend we weren't aiming for anything in the first place. Right? How many of you, when I started out talking about success, you know, said to yourself, oh, that's not me. I don't really need to be successful. Yeah, you do. We all want to be successful. Maybe it doesn't mean uh, wealth and inventing something that no one else has ever invented. Uh, but we all want to, in the sphere of life that we've chosen, we want to live meaningful lives of impact and change and growth. We want to be a good mom, uh, a good worker, a good dreamer, or an artist. We want to be these things. And what happens is, if we're so worried about failing in those and we want to avoid it so bad, we pretend that we don't actually have those desires. That that wasn't a way that God actually created you uniquely. To say, you were designed, you're my craftsmanship, and I've got this thing I want you to do. And we say, oh, that's okay, I didn't really need to do that anyway. I'm, I'm fine settling for this. And yet, as the poet says, what happens to a dream deferred? It means that you shrivel up like a raisin in the sun. Or Proverbs 17 says that, uh, that uh, when you're not living out the dreams and the design God has for you, that, that crushed spirit dries up your bones and makes you brittle. And maybe from the outside, you look perfectly respectable. You're living a perfectly decent life. No one would notice anything wrong. But on the inside, you're dissolving because you know that secretly there's this thing that you were supposed to do, this thing that God had placed on your heart, and, and you, you've never gone there because you need to avoid failure so badly. The good news is you're not alone. Simon Peter was in that exact same position. See, Jesus continued on. All the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. And so Jesus calls out Simon Peter specifically. And he says, all right, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. See, Jesus is already saying to him, yeah, you know, you're going you're gonna to fail. But I pray that your faith may not fail. And when you have failed and turned back, strengthen your brothers. But how did Peter react to that, right? We have to avoid failure at all costs. And so Simon Peter says, well, no, Lord, I'm, I'm ready to go with you to prison, even to death. I'm not going to fail. Maybe one of these other bozos, I won't fail. But Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, within 24 hours, you will deny three times that you know me. You are going to fail so big. See, if avoiding failure becomes the thing that we're going to do, we're setting ourselves up for, for a real big fall. Because it's a lie. 
You can't avoid failure. Even if you hit the reset button, even if you shift the target, even if you pretend you didn't have dreams, failure is going to come in one way or another. Either when you finally realize that you've settled for something you didn't want, or even in this path that you're on, failure is going to hit you. And if you are stuck in avoiding it at any cost, you will not grow and learn from that failure. You'll deny it, you'll do anything to keep it at bay, but you will get sideswiped more than anything else. And that's why this concept of finite versus infinite games has been so helpful to me. Because in finite games, if you're not winning, you're failing. And failing is bad. But in an infinite game, you're not competing against someone else. You're only competing against yourself and who you were yesterday. And so if you can shift your mentality out of this finite game framework into this infinite one, then failure is no longer something we have to fear and avoid at any cost. In fact, not only that, failure becomes the thing that spurs us on to greater success than we ever might have dreamed. You see, here's the dirty secret. Success doesn't breed success. Even business owners who have successful startups on their first try, uh, the failure rate on their second startup is astronomical because they thought that they'd figured it out, but in fact, you don't learn from success. And there were just market factors and lucky things that they didn't anticipate. And yes, they worked hard, but there were so many things that went into them succeeding. And then they took that model and they tried to do it again. And those same factors weren't there and they failed hard. Success doesn't breed success. It's only through failure that we actually succeed at the larger things in life. There was a poster I had on my wall growing up, and in hindsight, I think it's so genius that I had this, I never understood it. But it was a Michael Jordan poster, uh, because of course he's the greatest player of all time, you know, as long as LeBron James, like, fails spectacularly moving on. Uh, But Michael Jordan, greatest player, but this poster was all about his failures, It was all about him saying, you know, there's been 38 times where I had the the last minute game-winning shot and I missed it. There's been 478 games that I've lost. There's been these many games I've, I've missed, opportunities where I've been given the opportunity to succeed and I've failed. And yet he keeps going. See, and what's finally clicked for me is that Michael Jordan, as someone watching Michael Jordan, I thought he was playing a finite game. I thought it was all about winning or losing, and he won more than everybody else, and so that's what made him great. And I had put him in this finite game box, but what I finally come to understand is Michael Jordan himself wasn't playing a finite game. His goal wasn't to win. His goal was to keep playing. And if your goal is to keep playing, if your goal is to compete against yourself and to use your failures to spur yourself onto greater things, then you actually will accomplish greater things. He will end up winning more. But if that was the goal, he would have fallen short. I saw that in my own soccer career. I I, I played soccer and I liked it fine, but I played soccer because I liked winning. But I didn't love it with the same passion that other people did. And what ended up happening was eventually I started losing to the people who just loved playing soccer. See, and if life is a finite game, if it's measured by our most recent success, our most recent victory, we're setting ourselves up for failure. But if life is just something that we look to find joy and meaning and impact in, and we're just trying to keep playing, then failure is just another opportunity for us to learn and grow and do something better next time. You see, here's uh, how Jesus, you know, I want to refocus on this, what Jesus said to Simon. So he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. 
But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. See, here's what we got to point out. This is Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe. Satan can ask to do what he wants all day long. Jesus has no obligation to do anything that Satan says. Satan can ask to sift them like wheat, to trouble them, to persecute them, and Jesus has all the power and authority to say, no, I'm going to protect my bros. But he doesn't. Satan says, I want to persecute your followers, and Jesus says, yeah, okay, that's fine. And what he prays for Simon is not, I pray that you won't fail. He could pray that too, but he doesn't. What he prays is that Simon's faith may not fail. See, what you see is this picture that Jesus was allowing uh, Simon to fail on purpose. And all he was praying was that Simon's faith would last him through it. Because here's, here's the next part of this I want to I say. I've known this story for most of my life, but I feel like only this week did I read this story differently. See, because here, what Jesus is saying, he says, and when you've turned back from your failure, strengthen your brothers. Which means he wants Peter to be the leader of the disciples and eventually be the, the, the leader of the church that's about to be formed uh, around the good news of Jesus. And he's saying, Peter, I want you to be the leader. And here's how I read it wrong. I always read it, I want you to be the leader in spite of your failure. Yet, you're about to do a really embarrassing thing, and in spite of that, I still want you to be a leader. And here's what's finally shifted for me as I've, as I've learned this infinite game and as I've come back to this. What he's really saying is, Peter, I want you to be the leader because of your failure. You see, this whole time, Simon Peter thought he could and should be a leader because of how great he was, because he was the closest of the disciples, because he did more miracles than anybody, because when it came to it, he was going to cut some guy's ear off. He thought that, that his successes and his comparing himself to others was what was going to make him a good leader. But Jesus is actually saying something so counterintuitive to that. He's saying, until you fail, you actually couldn't be the leader of your brothers. You couldn't. You need to fail so that you're not leading out of arrogance and pride and this finite mindset that says you've got to keep winning the next thing. He says you need to fail so that you can shift over into this infinite game that says you lead out of your weakness. That your failures are the things that change you, grow you, mature you, and, then, and only then will you truly be equipped to lead. This starts to ring true because I've been preaching in a church for about six years now and what I've learned over the course of those six years is nobody really wants a perfect Christian to stand up here and lecture them about what they're doing wrong in their lives and then go home. In fact, it sets up a really ugly dynamic because it makes people think that that they're so screwed up they can't actually live the life God wants for them because look at that guy on stage. He's got his act together. What people need is they need a leader who's willing to fail first, to be honest about his failures and how they're changing him and how they're growing him, and to share that with you so that you can be encouraged that whatever failures you're going through right now, whatever things you're facing, or the failures that have happened in your past, you need someone up here to say, it's okay, I've been there, I've gone through it, which is exactly what Jesus did for us. That is God, he didn't stay up in heaven and lead us through his perfection. He came down and lived the worst failure of all. He let himself be killed a torturous and criminal death. He failed so big to save us. 
And it's only our failures that actually help us grow and learn and become the people that we need to be so that we can successfully lead, so that we can live lives of meaning and impact. But this is way easier said than done. I tell you, even having wrestled with this for a week now and and thought through this and standing up here, I still don't actually want to fail. Failing is zero fun. And yeah, maybe I learned from it, but I would still rather avoid failure at all costs. But what that means then, though, is that the only choice left for me is to give up in the face of hardship and failure. And that's the one kind of failure that we can't and don't learn from. See, if we fail and we push through, if we fail and we keep trying, if we fail and we don't just avoid it, we grow and transform and become more fulfilled people. But if we fail and give up, then we short-circuit any growth or transformation that could have happened. And yet, I know how tempted I've been to give up. So many times in my life, I've given up because it was easier than facing the failure that I was so afraid of. But in moments like these, I turn to wisdom uh, from the great wise Victor Borga. Uh, If you know him, he's a Danish comedian uh, and pianist. And he was talking about uh, how his grandfather was an inventor who invented a soft drink called Four Up. Listen to Victor. He was a Danish inventor. He invented a soft drink, which he called Four Up. (laughs) But the Danes didn't care for that. So he added some sugar, I think, and then he called it Five Up. Still no good. Then he tried once more, and that time he called it Six Up. (laughs) But no luck, so he... Finally gave up and died heartbroken. (laughs) Little did you know how close he came. This is why we can't give up, right? Six up, he was so close. And how many of our failures have we been in that exact same spot? where we felt like this was a dead end. This was a moment where there was nothing further for us to do but give up. And yet, if we had just pushed through one more time, there was success waiting on the other side. How many moments where this is so hard and it it makes it feel like that's the universe's way of telling us that we're supposed to be done, we're supposed to give up, we're supposed to not have this dream anymore. And God's up there and having cheering for us and saying, no, don't you get it? If you can, this is the thing you needed to achieve the thing that you wanted to have. I see it in marriages. Timothy Keller talks about this. He does, he's a pastor. He does a lot of marriage counseling and, uh, and, and thinking on marriage. And he says that the, the, the couples that are in the worst spot, couples that are coming to him saying, we're, we're done, we're ready for divorce, or, like, we've tried everything. If, if those couples don't just give up in that moment but push through, within three to five years, those are the same people who, if you survey them, say that their spouse is the most important and happiest part of their life. But the difficulty and the failure makes them, makes them think that they, they must be at a dead end. They, they must be done. And so they never get there. They stop at six up. And this isn't just us. This is exactly what happened to Peter. See, Jesus' words came true because he's God. And so Peter did deny him three times in a very public and embarrassing, shaming way. The whole world, his fellow apostles, saw his denial of Jesus, saw his failure on the big stage. And so then even a few days later, after Jesus had been resurrected, 
Uh, and there should be a time of, of hope and joy because, oh my goodness, Jesus conquered death. He's alive. This is amazing. But not for Simon. Simon, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and then two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. Now, the Bible doesn't give us the motivation. It doesn't give us the background or the explanation of why Simon Peter chose to go fishing in this moment. But theologians universally agree, this is the moment where Peter gave up. See, when everyone else is celebrating the resurrection of God, he's focused on this failure that he just committed. And he's so ashamed and so broken, he says, you know what? I'm just going to go back to fishing. Because if you didn't know, that's what he used to do. He, he was a fisherman, had a perfectly fine fishing business, and then Jesus called him out of that and said, I want to make you a fisher of men. I want you to be someone who becomes a shepherd of people. And in this moment of failure, Peter gave up. And he went out to go fishing and, and took some disciples with him. But that night they caught nothing. See, because even going back to what he had or what he knew wasn't going to be enough anymore. And this is that moment that I think we all need to push through, this moment where it's so tempting to give up. It's so tempting to say that this failure is clearly proving that I wasn't cut out for this. I wasn't meant for this. But if we do, we won't learn. We won't grow. We won't change. We'll stay stuck in this finite mindset. Because here's the thing. If if failure makes you give up, then you will not ever succeed. Or you'll succeed at things that don't actually have value to you because you'll just settle for something that wasn't where you were wired and what your heart's desire is. See, it's so tempting to give up. But here's what's so amazing is that Jesus never actually gives up on you. You see, he didn't just conquer death and it was this amazing miracle. But look in this moment where Peter has given up. He's despairing. He thinks he's done and disqualified. He's stuck in the finite game. And the resurrected Jesus shows up on the beach. He says, you haven't caught anything. He miraculously gives them a catch of fish. And then Jesus says to his friends, he says, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbs back into the boat, drags the net ashore. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and then did the same with the fish. And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these, more than this fishing, more than, more than your old way of life? Yes, Lord, Simon Peter said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. In this moment where Peter feels more disqualified than ever, in the moment where his shame and his failure is so publicly known, in that moment, Jesus comes and says, I want you to be my leader. You're not disqualified in my book. The failures don't keep you from doing the thing I wanted. They were the necessary step to live the life I wanted you to live. The only thing Peter could have done wrong there was to give up. Because God had something bigger for him, and no failure on Peter's part could keep him from that. There's this really fascinating historical moment uh, that I think is really important uh, between Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon. And there's this quote that a lot of people know about Martin Luther, but it's actually a mistranslated quote. Uh, People have heard that Martin Luther said, sin boldly. And they understood that to mean that he was saying, oh yeah, whatever, who cares about God's laws? Who cares about right and wrong? Just do whatever you want to do and and God's going to forgive you, yay. 
But that's actually a mistranslation, and it's hugely a misunderstanding of what Luther was saying. You see, what was really happening was that Luther was in hiding, and so his disciple, Philip Melanchthon, was left to kind of keep the church in Germany at the time going, and everyone was mad at everyone else. Everyone was arguing. They were saying, well, we shouldn't do this anymore. We shouldn't sing these old hymns, and we shouldn't baptize babies anymore, and we shouldn't do this. We should pray differently than the way we've been praying. And they're all heaping that on Philip, and Philip's going, I don't know what to do. And he writes Martin Luther, and he says, Martin Luther, everyone's asking me all these questions. They don't know how to do church. What's the right thing to do? I'm so freaked out and paralyzed. I don't want to mess this up. And what Luther says to Philip Melanchthon is not sin boldly. The the better way to understand is what he says to him is, fail boldly. He says, make a decision, pick a thing, sing a song, do church a certain way. Just make a decision and be willing to fail boldly. But then the sentence continues. He says, but cling to Christ more boldly still. See, in this moment of of fear and paralysis and, and worry about failure, and Philip's so afraid to do anything, Luther says to him, fail big, fail boldly and trust that the God who can redeem death on a cross can work good through your failures, can use your failures in fact to encourage huge success around the world. And we now here, we're heirs of a tradition. 500 years later, we're still benefiting from the choices that Philip Melanchthon made, the failures that he was willing to make. And so here's the truth I want you to walk away with today. Remember what Jesus prayed about Peter. He didn't pray that Peter wouldn't fail. He prayed that Peter's faith wouldn't fail. And if your faith in God doesn't fail, then all of your failures, any of them, ones in your past, the ones that you haven't yet made, they can all be redeemed through his power. If Jesus can look Peter in the eye mere hours and days after he failed so publicly and say, you're the leader of my church, then Jesus says to you, wherever you are, whatever that burden he's placed on your heart is, he says, your failures don't disqualify you. In fact, they equip you for what I needed you to do. See, here's the crazy truth about this is that even if you fail, even if your faith struggles, even if you have a hard time believing in God's ability to overcome the failures in your life or to give you the successful life that you would like, God never stops believing in you. And you could fail yesterday, fail today, fail tomorrow. And each and every day he's saying to you, I still believe in you. And my work on the cross wasn't in vain. And even your failures can't keep you from what I would have for you. I will find a way to redeem them. I will find a way to use them. I will find a way to bring success and power and impact in your life. Maybe your faith is failing right now. But God's faith in you isn't. And it never will be until the day that you die. So fail boldly but cling to Christ more boldly yet. And you'll see success in a way that you never would have predicted. Amen. Would you please pray with me? Lord God, I give you thanks that you you don't work the way the world expects you to work. That you don't protect us from failure. You don't uh, try to hide us from hardship. But in fact, Lord, you've designed it so that you can use our failures, our struggles, our hardships to actually bring more growth, 
more transformation, more fruit in our lives. And so Lord God, I now pray for all of these people here today that whatever that fear is that's keeping them from aiming for the thing that you would have for them, that successful, full life of impact, Lord, I pray that you would offer them peace and freedom from shame, from fear that they're going to mess it up. And Lord, that you would use everything, both the worst things that they've done, the failures that they're going to commit, and you would use it to mold and shape them into the people that you need them to be, to live the life of purpose that you have for them. I pray all this in your holy name. Amen.